On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. History in five songs. With host Martin Popoff. A production of Pantheon Podcasts. Let's rock out with Martin. Yes, indeed. Welcome back to another episode of History in Five Songs with Martin Popoff, brought to you by the good people at Pantheon Podcast. Check out all our shows. Just Google us. We're all over the place. There's lots and lots of music shows uh, with the network. We're available on Spotify, iTunes, and over 40 other podcast platforms. All right. Um, So this is episode 221. I'm calling this Recalled Reactions from 1976. Uh, To give you a clue what this is about, here's some other titles I was thinking about. Weird First Impressions at 13. First Impressions at 13, First Impressions at 13 in 1976, First Impressions from 1976, Recalled First Impressions from 1976. Um, And I was trying to get the word album into, but no, I think this is perfect. Recalled Reactions from 1976. So the reason I I picked this year uh, is because I think this is the first year where I really feel like I remember, I saw I was 13 years old. I remember, um, you know, uh, getting these, these new albums and having a reaction and when I think back to some of these reactions some of them are bang on and they stayed the same and they stayed consistent some of them changed um, and uh, and again I think this is also the first year where I feel like there were lots of new releases that I remember getting as new releases and having that reaction uh, 1975 there's only a handful 1974 I'm really not feeling so I'm a, like 11 years old at that point I'm really not feeling um, you know, I, I definitely knew that there were a lot of bands I knew about already, even going back to 71, 72. Um, but uh, as new releases, as, you know, getting on this album and, and, you know, recognizing it as a new release and having an impression, not really. So 1976 is where it all sort of uh, sort of starts, um, you know, and this is almost like I almost wanted to get the word reaction into here as well, because those reaction videos thing, we know that that whole thing is overplayed, but some of them have been pretty interesting. I've, I've fallen prey uh, to watching a lot of reaction videos as well. So this is kind of like... Um, you know, the the original reaction videos, uh, and this is, uh, you know, well, of course, you can have reaction to new albums going back decades, but for, for me and our age and kind of where we're at sort of thing, uh, most of us... Uh, yeah, th- this uh, this for me, anyways, is uh, is a perfect year for that. And like I say, this is almost like true reaction videos. And for some weird reason, I do remember my reaction. I don't know why that is, but uh, this is uh, the sort of thing I definitely do remember. I suppose it's it's prompted by seeing the uh, song titles and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I, I thought this would be pretty interesting because it's not your tired old ranking of the albums of 1976 or or a celebration of that year. It's, this is really about, um, I'm just going to give you my true feelings 
of what I remember from these albums uh, from this year. So so my true uh, first impressions, whether they were wrong, whether they were right, whether they, they stuck sort of thing. Um, this is also a strong topic because I went through a lot of bands and realized, um, you know, there is only a clutch of these that I feel. Uh, and, and when I get to the honorable mentions, they're not really honorable mentions. They're the ones that... Um, are these other records from 1976 and I'm going to tell you you know what I remember uh, and why they're not in here um, because I'm not really remembering them uh, perfectly perfectly uh, another point I want to make is this is all pretty much hard rock uh, you know nascent heavy metal of some sort because in 1976 that's all I kind of cared about so there are a lot of albums I noticed that came out in 76 that I know a lot about now uh, but I didn't know about then but that's why this is all coming out um that sort of way. So let's take a listen to our first selection and we shall discuss. This is Black Sabbath with You Won't Change Me. All right, so here we are. Black Sabbath Technical Ecstasy came out September 25th, 1976. So I'm in Trail, BC. It's fall. It's getting cold. Winter's coming. And what a wintry album this was. I definitely remember. Um, so, so... I knew every Black Sabbath album by this point, um, and I definitely remember my buddy Jeff Cahoon getting um, Sabotage as a new release. Uh, previous to that, I'm not feeling the new releaseness of those Sabbath albums. So, you know, Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, I would have been 10 years old. So they're just coming in as a clump, right? Uh, Mark Toop, Forrest Toop's brother, uh, my uh, my good cousin Lawrence Perpalkin. Um, you know there were there were these uh, these albums that were out there that they had. I definitely remember Lawrence having some Black Sabbath for sure, and that's probably the first place I heard Sabbath. Um, also, Tim and Joe Popoff, my brother, uh, my my cousins. Um, I remember Led Zeppelin specifically with them. I don't quite remember the Sabbath, but Lawrence definitely Black Sabbath. Um, but definitely remember getting this as a new release. And um, the thoughts on it were that, um, you know, these are thoughts that pretty much hold up, I would imagine, with this album. So I remember I wanted to pick this song to play because I remember, I just remember writing it off as a ballad, even though it's not really a ballad. I love it a lot. I love this song, You Won't Change Me. Um, but I remember... Um, Thinking the production was really good, thinking that it was kind of mainstreamy, uh, topic-wise, and uh, and the way the songs were arranged, um, they're not as proggy as you got on Sabotage. Uh, I remember loving the heavy songs, Backstreet Kids, of course. Um, but my my overall impression was this was just really a depressing, deflated sort of album. It was not a happy album. Kind of puts you in a depressing mood. Dirty Women and Gypsy is on this. Everything's kind of dark on this album. Um, but it definitely had ballads and it definitely felt a little commercial rock and roll doctor felt that way as well. Um, so, you know, my first impressions on this one, possibly not that particularly interesting because they pretty much have stuck uh, with the way it was. Um, I guess my point would be is that even at 13, we kind of knew that Sabbath was a bit on their back foot. Um, with this one another one in this category so i wanted to call this category the first one uh i'll read you my notes directly i already knew this band for sure with actual new releases from 1974 or 1975 so so yeah this is a these are bands that i already um 
I was already, me and my buddies uh, were already well aware of. Um, so in this category, I also want to mention Budgie. If I were Britannia, I'd waive the rules. Bandolier was the first one I got as a new release. Definitely remember getting that at Magic Mushroom Records. Um, but uh, super disappointed at this one. Got this, was so excited about it. Loved that album cover. And it is really quirky and proggy and weird and poppy and fusion-y even. Um, it is not very heavy at all. It was uh, it was kind of a, definitely a, a setback um, from the first one. Very perplexed, very ticked off. Um, also in this category, Ted Nugent Free For All. I didn't look it up, but uh, this so this was my first big concert. I've told you guys about this many times. Uh, saw it was Rex and then Bebop Deluxe and Ted Nugent all in one show in Spokane, Washington. Went down. Dad took us with a couple of friends, um, but. When Free For All came out, definitely knew the first album already, maybe even uh, some of those Amboy Dukes ones. Um, my impression of Free For All, we loved it. Uh, me and my buddies loved this album, thought it was great. Uh, I don't think we even really particularly glommed on, or I don't remember the story about knowing who Meatloaf was, who this other singer was. There was just this weird voice on it. You know, obviously pre-internet and pre-a lot of information. Um, that That is an interesting thing now that I think about it, about Free For All. Um, didn't really clue in on uh, on all this singing business, right? What's Ted singing? What is Derek singing? What is this meatloaf guy singing? Um, we just knew that it was uh, quite technical. Um, there was some really modern thinking heavy metal on this album. Uh, I think there were songs on there like ha Hammerdown and Street Rats um, that you would probably say that we liked better than almost everything on the Ted Nugent album. So it, it really seemed like that same shift that you got from Get Your Wings to Rocks. Uh, so Ted Nugent to this album, this album we, we saw them as, as a parallel sort of situation. Um, another one in this category of knowing the band, uh, Rainbow Rising. Got the debut as a new release. Don't remember much about it, um, you know, about getting it uh, as a new release, but we knew we were aware. We were aware of Deep Purple. So Rising, I remember getting that, and um, you know what? It was not one of the greatest albums of all time for us for a lot of years. I mean, now it's considered one of the great metal albums of all time. The one thing I remember is uh, we were absolutely pleased that there were no mellow songs on it, but... Being Canadian, being next to the States, being 13, being kids, um, uh, when when you got this this very European sort of feel from an album like that, um, it, it also felt a little depressing. Uh, so it, it felt a little clanky, depressing. Uh, I don't think the production's very good on it. It certainly wasn't up to the standards of rocks and free-for-all. Um, so, it, so it came out, it was, it was not your 10 out of 10 record. It was not the greatest band in the world, even though every song was heavy. Um, the other one I remember... Uh, is Alice Cooper Goes to Hell, um, Welcome to My Nightmare. Definitely got that as a new release. I was part of that whole Alice Cooper mania, uh, you know, when the movie came out and he goes solo. See, that's the other thing I don't really... Uh, I didn't really click in on in a huge way this idea of going solo. It was just like the next Alice Cooper album. Uh, but knew all the old stuff. Loved Welcome to My Nightmare to Death. This was definitely a big disappointment. Um, it was not as heavy as cool. It was not conceptual. It was not as spooky and scary that a 13-year-old would like. Um, so yeah, that was not uh, a great one either. Uh, let's take a short break. We'll be right back. Hey, Pantheon listeners. Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. 
I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything factor meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, uh, oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. 
Okay, back again here on History in Five Songs with Martin Popoff, episode 221, Recalled Reactions from 1976. Take a listen to this track and we'll sh- we shall discuss. This is Aerosmith with Lickin' a Promise. All right, so the category here is I knew this band, but I can't remember if this was the first as a true new release or not. Um, So the previous one, I definitely remembered new releases. This one, not so much. Aerosmith Rocks comes out May 3rd, 1976. I absolutely remember this. We love this album as kids. Forrest Hoop got the first uh, copy of this. I think he picked it up in Spokane. Um, so it came back from one of our legendary, uh, you know, shopping trips in Spokane. Uh, but this wasn't one we were together on. This is, uh, this is, he's with the family. Um, and, uh, we played this album, loved it to death, loved the back in the saddle, uh, loved licking a promise, uh, sick as a dog, uh, rats in the cellar, nobody's fault. All these great, great, uh, songs on this love that album cover with the, you know, the diamonds there and rocks in the, you know, in, uh, in, uh, quotation marks. Right. Um, the production was amazing. Uh, just loved this album to death. It, it literally, it, it quickly became like it, immediately our favorite Aerosmith album. Uh, one thing I remember about this album um, is that it took me a long time to get it. I really wanted to own this album. So when he came back from Spokane with it, I don't think it came into Canada for a long, long time. And I just looked up in my cool green book that I, I kept like a journal of all this stuff. It's an awesome book. I learned a lot of things even for this episode. But here's one of the cool things I learned. So um, so I remember not having it for a long time and being green with jealousy of, of uh, Forrest for having it. And we'd have to go to his place to listen to it, etc. Um, we used to we used to lend albums to each other sometimes, too. But uh, but yeah, I, I remember holding back albums because you didn't want to lend them out. You know, you wanted people had to come to your place to hear it. Right. Um, but I just realized that um, I eventually got my copy in the States as well when we went on a family vacation down the coast, uh, down all through California, Disneyland, uh, just dipped into Mexico, Tijuana, and back. So I got this in San Francisco or L.A. or something like that. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, so this was on that trip. I don't know if you've ever seen that picture of me that I flash around all over the place uh, of me as a little kid in a sabotage shirt. It was on that trip. So, uh, so that's kind of cool. So my, my copy actually comes from California. Kind of neat. Um, and other ones in this category, Rush 2112. Uh, I remember getting this and, uh, lo and behold, uh, thought it was heavy, thought it was a masterpiece, thought it was cool. But again, um, that depressing thing, there's a theme here, right? Uh, uh, we had an episode earlier about, um, is this album depressing or whatever, or how I'm depressed by, you know, um, the early seventies stuff and certainly sixties music, blah, blah, blah. Um, and even those uh, those um, you know Latin rock tones of Santana, that's a whole nother uh, thing. But but twenty one twelve um, didn't love it. Didn't didn't uh, you know love the heaviness and and the amazing drumming and definitely Temples of Syrinx, um, something for nothing that kind of thing. Um, but um, yeah, it was a little little too conceptual, a little too weird, a little too broken up. Um, you know, really thought they were cool. 
but uh, but was not vaulted to the top of the lists. Sweet, give us a wink. I remember, um, you know, there was there was you know, I was part of the Desolation Boulevard mania. You know, the Roller Rink songs, Fox on the Run, Ballroom Blitz, uh, all that kind of stuff. But give us a wink came out and. Um, don't really uh, don't really feel like I appreciated the heaviness and the awesomeness of it. It is my favorite sweet album by a long shot. Um, uh, as you know, I wrote a sweet book, but it is out of print now, uh, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, there was a sweet book that I did. Um, but uh, but lo- st- so that's one I didn't like all that much at the time, but loved more later on. And I wonder if something uh, this had to do with a little fat little um, you know to do with. The idea that even though they were in the magazines a fair bit, moderately, uh, this was not a band that toured here a lot, so they didn't feel part of the North American experience. So it was kind of like a like a album that was just untethered, just sort of sitting there. It's there. It feels like a baby band, an, an obscure band. You don't know a lot about them, but there's just this great album. It's a little bit like the Montrose album, I suppose. Um, Led Zeppelin Presence, I honestly don't remember much about that, so I probably shouldn't even talk about it. I don't really remember too much about it as a new release so we'll leave that one aside um blue oyster cult uh agents of fortune um definitely remember this as a new release because i remember having on your feet or on your knees that was the album i i associate with burning major amounts of incense in my bedroom listening to that finding it kind of spooky and old and trapsy and weird uh, but agents of fortune came out and uh big disappointment of course because it's not very heavy but loved to death um this ain't this ain't the summer of love um and tattoo vampire uh definitely definitely those were really cool eti was pretty cool too love the you know the uh, the whole um alien men in black sort of feel of that but definitely um not a big fan of of blue oyster cult uh too much at this point uh because this was a pretty mellow album they were in the magazines a lot they certainly looked cool i remember as a 13 year old thinking this was one of the coolest looking bands uh, there ever was um you know eric bloom with the sunglasses and stuff all right, let's move on. Uh, third selection here. Take a listen to this. Uh, this is Thin Lizzy with Massacre. Okay, here's an oddball category for you. Um, this is bands that released two albums in one year, and I've got three bands uh, in this category to discuss. So Thin Lizzy, honestly don't remember uh, Jailbreak, particularly as a new release, uh, saying, okay, we know the old stuff, here comes Jailbreak, boom, but I definitely, definitely remember um, Johnny the Fox as a new release. And I noted in my little green book... Um, that um uh, the only words i have by it is christmas spree christmas uh so that must have been a christmas buying spree i must have had some christmas money celebrating christmas um so i must have bought a few albums at the same time the album came out october 16th 76 so there's proof of a bit of a lag of not really getting this particularly as a new release so it's about two months later um Definitely remember uh, really liking it a lot, uh, loving Thin Lizzy, loved that album cover, drew that album cover all over the place, um, you know, all the, the um, Jim Fitzpatrick, uh, you know, lattice work, Celtic artwork, not work, I guess they call it. Um, 
But yeah, I thought that was a really cool album. Loved those songs. Found it also a little bit uh, spooky, a little bit dark. Um, and I uh, felt the same way about Jailbreak as well. Um, so, you know, so put it this way. We weren't massive, massive Thin Lizzy fans. And again, it might have something to do with maybe the uh, the touring is falling off. They're not really in the magazines a lot. They just feel like a faraway band. Uh, maybe that has something to do with it. I don't know. But uh, yeah, became much bigger Thin Lizzy fans over the years. But I can tell you in 1976 was not the most massive Thin Lizzy fan of all time. Nazareth. Close enough for rock and roll and play in the game. I remember getting both of these and being uh, disappointed by them. Nazareth was a band that was big in Canada, even big in Western Canada. A&M Records, you've heard me talk about this, how they were good with, with, their, uh, with their bands in Canada. or AMA, But A&M Canada was good with bands uh, in the Canadian territory. So Status Quo got good distribution, even though they weren't coming here. Styx uh, did well here as well. Um, but yeah, just remembered uh, getting these and not particularly liking, uh, you know, much of these albums at all. Uh, that album cover on Close Enough for Rock and Roll was super depressing to us. It was just like this rainy, grainy shot of the guys in the car. Uh, playing the game was not very heavy, but uh, they fell into playing the game and Expect No Mercy have the same sort of... Um, vibe to them for me of just having two or three heavy songs and we kind of chucked the rest of it and we're getting ticked off at Nazareth. Uh, Kiss Destroyers when I definitely definitely remember this is one my my memory is sitting there with headphones on and listening to this and loving the new ambri- ambitious version of Kiss. I definitely remember um, you know we had Kiss Kiss as a new release Hotter Than Hell new release Dress to Kill the live album you've heard my story about that but Destroyer um so my impressions of that as a 13-year-old was loved the ambition of this, loved the heavy songs, horrified at Bath, horrified at Great Expectations, um, thought Flaming Youth was a little bit of a sellout as well, quite like Shout It Out Loud as well, good party sort of tune, versus heavier than the chorus, right? Um, but felt Detroit Rock City, King of the Nighttime World, God of Thunder were like the new masterpieces, better than anything they'd ever done before. Um, so there was that going for it. So yeah, loved the album cover as well. Drew that all over the place uh, as a kid. Uh, and then Rock and Roll Over comes out, and I've got to say with this one, my impressions as a 13-year-old, way higher than they are now. Um, this album's um, you know consistently gone downhill for me over the years. Um, but loved it at the time. That album cover, I remember seeing it for the first time, blowing my mind. Um, so yeah, that's a band with two albums at the same time. So yeah, Destroyer loved it to death. It still uh, is, you know, give or take, maybe with Kiss Revenge, my favorite Kiss album of all time. Um, but uh, yeah, there's your oddball category. Let's take a listen to our fourth track. Take a listen. This is Judas Priest with Island of Domination. <laughs> All right, so the category here is um, new band to me. So this is not the first album by a band, but it's a new band to me and my buddies. Um, so I remember getting this in uh, at Rock Island Tape Center, which I ended up working at. My good buddy Gordon Lee still runs that store today. Um, 
but yeah, Forrest and I worked there in the record department. We also worked in Kelly's, uh, did some other little work around, um, some other places, uh, long story. Um, but uh, definitely ran this record department. Wasn't working there yet at 13. Certainly was by 15, 16, I believe. Um, but got this there, and uh, the impression of this one is the reason I wanted to do this episode because I love I love the story of hearing this for the first time. I remember hearing this. Um, John Polidano bought the first copy that I realized that I just looked up in my, my uh, green book. So he got the first copy, and then I must have got a copy immediately after. So fortunately, Rock Island had two copies at least in of this. Um, in Canada, it was on Janus Records. I remember we looked at that album cover and thought, this is almost too fancy for a heavy metal album, so we don't know what this is going to sound like. Turn it over to the back. They kind of look like they're rocking out. There's this religious writing and all these these heavy, heavy um, you know, titles of songs like uh, Deceiver, Dreamer Deceiver, Epitaph, Genocide, Tyrant, Island of Domination. Everything sounded medieval and timeless and almost religious. So, So that front cover... The title, Sad Wings of Destiny, uh, when we got out of the wrapper, the fact that it's on a record label we'd never heard of, Janus Records, um, which has kind of like mythological overtones. It was two-tone brown. Um, and the fact that Rob Halford looked like he had short hair and he was holding a microphone stand over his head that looked almost like a Jesus crucifixion sort of picture. Um, and yes, the religious writing, and the and the name of the band, of course. Yeah, how could I forget that? Um, and just the fact that we knew nothing about them, we were taking this album back to my place to play on the home stereo. On uh, you know at uh, uh, what was our address? Woodland Drive, anyways. Two nine three or three nine two three nine two one maybe. Um, anyways, the the big you know dad built the house right, so we got the big um the big vaulted double double uh, height ceiling with the with the cool. Um, red modular um fireplace with the with the double length uh red chimney that goes all the way to the top inside the house uh it was quite a technological thing dad built with this and the and the one the the two types of um circular staircases that he built as well um so yeah this was a completely family built house uh anyway so yeah we had the main stereo there and i remember sitting down listening to this thinking this could be a christian rock album and not a heavy metal album Put it on. We were absolutely blown away. It vaulted to the top of all our lists that we would sit and do of top 10 singers and top 10 riffs and albums and heaviest songs of all time. I remember we just sat there like going, who is this baby band? And we were like almost scaring ourselves. I I remember my little brother, Brad, rest in peace. He's, uh, He's passed on, died at the age of 49, almost made it to his 50th birthday, had a lot of health problems over the years. But I remember him crying because we were all, we were all like, um, we were all like kind of spooked by this album. We were spooked by how good it was. We were spooked by how completely professional and how this baby band was better than every other band we knew. Uh, all these veteran bands, uh, because that's how we felt. Uh, you know, you had a lead singer who was this operatic technical singer that was way different than every other heavy heavy metal singer. Uh, every single riff on this album was more complicated and cooler than every Black Sabbath riff, who are probably the second reigning kings of the riff. Um, it was proggy. Um, again, it was super timeless. Um, so that was a, a really cool thing. So that came out March 25th, 76. Um, boy, other ones in this category. The only other one I can think of to put in this category was Scorpion's Virgin Killer. So didn't know the band. 
got this in 1976 and I remember playing it at Forrest Hoops place for the first time and our impression was uh, that uh, similar to Judas Priest, so so we had the German thing happening for the very first time with the band. Um, so this is a German band. We we recognized by reading everything on it that it was a German band, um, but it was really patchy, a little bit um, behind the times, a little bit weird, a little bit krautrock, even though we didn't know what krautrock was. But it had Virgin Killer on it. It had that song uh, that was so violent and scrapey and weird and chaotic that it felt like the heaviest song we'd ever heard um but it was only heavier than judas priest because it was it was kind of uh uh, less polite than judas priest it was like judas priest of hell bent for leather era versus sad wings right um and then yeah had had some other pretty cool songs on a catch your train pictured life um it was a little gothic a little spooky a little weird um but but yeah we thought it was exotic uh you could hear the exoticness of the germanness of it we noticed that right away um and then we did a weird thing we used to do these album trades and i traded it uh i had bought that and he had bought yesterday and today, yesterday and today as our two risks for the day. And we brought them home, like not knowing these bands and we played each of them. And, uh, I expressed some, uh, some greater like for the first yesterday and today album and Forrest expressed some greater like for Virgin killer. And this was one of our simplest trades. It was a straight swap. Um, you know, and it, and it felt really weird, right? We both spent six ninety nine. You're supposed to champion your own album, and all of a sudden we're swapping these. Uh, but more on that later because I've got YNT or yesterday and today, sorry, in the next uh, category. Um, all right, so uh, our last category for the day is uh, new band period. This is their debut. Uh, so take a listen to this. This is Boston with Hitch a Ride. <laughs> All right. So the funny thing with Boston is um, I'm I'm doing this because I never owned this album because this is the mellowest thing on this list. So we would not buy a Boston album. So I can't remember who owned it, but we heard it right away. Somebody owned it um, because I noticed up. Uh, I noticed looking up in my green book that the first time I owned this album was February 1st, 1981. I got it from Jeff Lakes up the street. Jeff Lakes uh, tragically uh, was one of at least five climbers who died on K2 in 1995. Um, so he was a cool, uh, you know, kind of mellow, quiet, uh, long-haired, stonerish kind of kid uh, in school. Um, you know, he hung out with the rougher crowd kind of thing. But I uh, commandeered this big deal um, with him uh, and bought... Uh, so in 1981, beginning of 81, um, I bought a crate or two of records from him. I remember that's how I got Montrose for the first time. And I bought his pretty scrappy, mismatched small drum set from him. Um, so that's how I ended up with my first copy of Boston in 1981. So five years later, I get my very first copy of Boston. But I remember at the time, um, our thoughts on this record were... Um, uh, major jealousy that it was doing so well and taking sales away from heavier albums. Uh, that's a theme that happens with Sticks. It happens later with Loverboy. It happens later with Foreigner. Um, 
But the other thing we felt about this record is we loved the heaviness of the Tom Schultz guitar tone. So we so we noticed that there was a sort of heaviness to this album, but everything else was working against it to make it not heavy. So the overall production, the drum sound, the Brad Delp singing, uh, and the melody and the mellowness of the song. So it was almost like... Um, there was one thing keeping it, uh, keeping one foot in our heavy metal category, and that was the guitar sound. Um, so we're kind of on board. We had friends that liked it. Most of us, it, it was a badge of honor not to like the Boston album, um, so we did that. So, um, so other ones in this category, Triumph, Triumph, definitely remember that as a new release. Um, and thinking it was okay, not great. Canadian band, good to see. Um, previous to this, all we had was BTO, April Wine, and Rush, and this was a pretty heavy album. Album, uh, for 1976 star stars uh, definitely remember this as a new release uh, because of course they were they were heavily promoted in circus and cream and hit parader um, I'm looking at my copy right now as I speak you know with the embossed uh, the big yellow logo on black uh, the really dramatic looking you know soft um, but cool looking band photo on the back and um, this was uh, simply another version of Kiss type music. So you had, but it was like your thinking man's Kiss and Kiss without makeup. So you had Boys in Action was a good heavy one on this. Now I Can was a good heavy one on this. Um, Tear It Down, Nightcrawler, Monkey Business, Livewire, Detroit Girls. Detroit Girls was pretty heavy. So they were like a cross between Kiss, New York Dolls, Aerosmith, that sort of thing. Um, maybe the songwriting was not as good, certainly as Aerosmith, um, but it's produced by Jack Douglas, produced really well. So that's what I remember thinking of Stars. We were hoping, this was our band, so this was like a new band right when we were kids, so that felt kind of cool. Um, so we were championing Stars, hoping the best for them when Violation came out. We even like that even better, um, and it is a better album. Um, so that's one in that category. I mentioned yesterday and today, so that's a new band with a debut. Uh, our thoughts on that as kids was that this was a little dated sounding. Uh, the production was a little rough. Um, it was a little bassy and boomy, a little chaotic. It didn't feel like it was strapped together as well as our favorite professional bands like Ted Nugent and Aerosmith uh, as, as a good comparative. Um, so yeah, that thing came out. And it just became an album we liked. It was kind of a 7 out of 10. Um, Stars would have been maybe a 7 out of 10 because it wasn't particularly heavy. Tribe, maybe even a 6 out of 10. Uh, Boston would have been your 3 out of 10. Yeah, something else I wanted to go through in this episode, but we're out of time. I, this was long again, uh, was our whole rating system thing. I could probably give you the ratings of every single song on this from memory uh, using our rating system. Um so yeah, the other one in this, Runaways, getting that as a new release, remember that, and and uh, and thinking that was a pretty heavy album that sounded like Stars, Kiss, uh, and uh, let's see, Stars, Kiss, Moxie, Triumph maybe, New York Dolls a little bit. Um, so that was a good album that we liked uh, right out of the gates. Um, you know, that's a pretty heavy album for 1976, all-girl band, of course. Um and then uh, the other ones that I felt like I couldn't talk about because I didn't feel really fit with this, I have absolute recollections of it, but these are albums that come out in 76, are UFO No Heavy Pettin', uh, ACDC High Voltage, um, you know my situation there, I ended up getting that, I believe, at the same time as Let, Your, Let There Be Rock 
at, in Winnipeg um, and uh, and getting that home from this cross uh, Canada country family trip. Um, and then so it's a, it's a little bit of a mess. But in 76, you've got the domestic high voltage, but you've also got the Australian dirty deeds done dirt cheap. And I knew nothing about that. Like forget Australian airport uh, imports for me in 76. Not not a possibility, not a reality. Um but the funny thing I just realized, looking in my green book, uh, I didn't realize that I got sin after sin at that same store on that same trip. So this would be Kelly's in Winnipeg in 1977. So uh, that was the fall. Uh, that was the one I was dying to hear the most from that trip to get back. I mean, already knowing Sad Wings, sitting there waiting for another two weeks of travel to get home, hoping your record didn't, uh, uh, you know, didn't melt in the back of the green Dodge van. Um, so, uh, so yeah, that one was 77. Sammy Hager, 9 on 10 scale, don't really remember. Status quo blue for you, don't really remember. Your eye heap high and mighty, don't remember. Sticks, wasn't really a fan. Tejas, don't remember that as a new release. Foghat Night Shift, um, you know, we are Foghat fans. These are all bands we knew about and had an album or two um, already. Um, well, obviously not Sammy Hager solo. Queen Day at the Races, don't really particularly remember that as a new release. And uh, I'm, I'm amazed to see that the Pat Travers debut album is 77. I always think of that as older older than that. So uh so that's your not honorable mentions in the honorable mention slot. Um if you like this show and want to support future episodes, you can go to Kofi.com slash Martin Popoff, hit that red support button, buy me a coffee or a pint. On this uh this week the list is a little longer because it is one where I reminded you all at the Facebook page and on my regular page. Um so this week I'd like to thank Andy at Black Sugar Transmission, our favorite rock star, uh, as part of uh as part of uh, the family here. You know, Blondie, KMFDM, um Lee Clifford, uh David Fisher, Monty Olson, Daryl Oon, Augustine Garcia. C.D. Paredes, Philip Edward Phyllis, Steve Polari, Patrick Stevens, and William Walker. Thank you all. Um, exciting time for books right now. Uh, the new Who book, my big plush Who Quadrophenia book, is in stock. I can ship those right now. Um, and also my Bluish Occult panel book, which turned out really, really good. Um, Dominance and Submission, the Bluish Occult canon. And I've got the paperback versions of the Hawkwind visual biography, the Nazareth visual biography, and the uh, Emerald new version of the old um, Jailbreak uh, whatever what do we call it dublin to jailbreak uh book so that's all available at martinpopoff.com uh hope you enjoyed this episode it was nice reminiscing about 1976 with you but like i say as the episode title says recalled reactions from 76 wrong or right most of them turned out to be right ossified you know i guess cast in stone from that time maybe you don't change your mind particularly few went up few went down but uh it's uh it's nice to see that uh you know me and my buddies were not completely clueless at 13 years old about these albums we kind of kind of already had this whole thing figured out for you know a good 24 36 months uh of uh of super intense fandom uh by this point already uh there you go uh for homework you know go play some black sabbath technical ecstasy that album deserves a little more love Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at the RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at R&R Archaeology.
what would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.